Well, nighttime was a good time to take care of this business. Darkness is a help to any man who doesn't particularly want to be seen by a lot of people, not be seen by people he knows. And it was in the darkness that the premier expert in the law of Moses, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, came to Jesus. And he began a very frank conversation, really not pridefully at all as the Pharisees were prone to do, but with a sense of longing for information. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Well, again, Nicodemus said he didn't understand. He wasn't grasping this. And Jesus gave a a mild but gentle rebuke. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and do not understand these things? Now, why would Jesus expect the teacher of Israel, emphasis on the teacher of Israel, the leading teacher of Israel, why would he expect him to know what he was talking about? Well, very simply, because he would expect Nicodemus to be familiar with one of the most hopeful and exciting texts in all the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. This is where Jesus is drawing his information, his explanation. What Jesus was referencing was not just the regeneration of people in the new covenant, the new birth by the Holy Spirit. In the context of Ezekiel 36, Jesus is taking the lid off the entire future story of Israel, a story consummated in the coming millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. So while you're turning to Ezekiel 36, where we'll be tonight... I need to provide just a couple of brief notes. And we'll begin in Ezekiel 36, 16 in a couple of minutes. First of all, a brief note on Ezekiel 40 through 48. The official title of my message tonight is The Old Testament Witnesses, Ezekiel 36 and 40 through 48. But I just want to touch for a moment on chapters 40 through 48. You don't have to turn there. Ezekiel 40 through 48 is... The incredible story of the details of the rebuilding of the temple of God in the millennium and of worship in the millennium. We're going to save those nine chapters for its own actual mini-series in the upcoming future. But just one note for all who say that the temple and or the millennial sacrifices described are somehow symbolic in nature. The Dead Sea Scrolls containing writings of Jewish scholars in the centuries before and after the time of Christ, as well as ancient rabbinic literature, 
these documents agree that the goal of Israel's restoration and deliverance is A, to be returned to their rightful land, and B, to rebuild the temple. That has always been the expectation of Jewish eschatology. And so we'll spend a lot of time on that. Just wanted to give you a brief note on it tonight. A second brief note. Let me give you a brief note on timing. On timing. What we're going to see in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 16, is a detailed description of the return of Israel to their land. And this description absolutely cannot be speaking of the return from exile that happened in the the 4th century or so B.C. Nehemiah, Malachi, they both outline the continual bent toward rebellion that even those who had returned and the rebellion of their descendants. And this fulfillment is still future, even from our vantage point, from the vantage point of the church age. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 11, beginning in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That can't be fulfilled today. It's not fulfilled today. Israel as a nation is not regathered. They haven't been nationally regenerated. And the supernatural abundance we're going to see tonight, that's not happening today. And a third brief note. Before we get into our text, let me just give you a brief note on how we interpret Ezekiel 36. The Old Testament scholar, Dr. Mark Rooker, he asked the question about timing also. And he wonders hypothetically if everything that we're going to see has happened already and it's just, or it's just symbolic somehow. And he replies to his own question with this comment. He says this, quote, The answer to this question is largely based upon one's hermeneutical or interpretive method of reading the Bible. Our approach to the biblical content is to interpret the book in a normal fashion. What does that mean? That it means what it says and it says what it means. He continues... This method requires us to make a distinction between references to Israel and the church, especially in the reading of biblical prophecy. This is justified on the basis of the fact that Israel and the church are clearly distinguished by the biblical writers. And by the way, just as a note, in the book of Ezekiel, the term Israel always is a technical term referring to the 12 tribes, the covenant nation collectively. And Israel is distinguished from Gentile nations, just like in the New Testament. This approach is in direct opposition to our amillennial brothers who want to interpret passages such as Ezekiel 36 and, dare I say, especially passages such as Ezekiel 36, which just shout premillennialism in some symbolic fashion. I've often cited the great amillennial theologian Cornelius Venema, and he writes this, that dispensationalists insist, quote, that the promises of the Lord to his earthly people Israel must be interpreted in a strictly literal rather than a figurative or spiritual way. Let me ask you this. Aren't you glad that we interpret the promises of the first coming of Christ in a strictly literal way? Why would we not interpret the promises of the second coming of Christ in a strictly literal way? But in opposition to interpreting Ezekiel 36 in some sort of figurative or spiritual way, the great Dr. Charles Feinberg, here's what he writes of Ezekiel 36. This chapter constitutes the acid test for those who would explain prophecy any other way than literally. Now that's a scholarly way of saying that this is the gotcha. 
um, for on our side of this thing. He says, it must be admitted, even grudgingly, that this is speaking of a literal Israel, a literal land, and a literal regeneration experience. Those who suggest the passage may be expounded in a typical or figurative fashion do not make a convincing case. So we got that out of the way. What does that mean? It means that we're just going to believe what the text says. I think that's the best approach, don't you? So let's work our way toward Ezekiel thirty-six sixteen. We haven't been in Ezekiel much recently, so just to, to back up a little bit, Ezekiel was both a prophet and a priest. He was carried away to Babylon with the group that was taken uh, from Jerusalem in 597. Remember, there were three groups taken, and the middle one, 597, Ezekiel was with them. He ministered for at least 23 years, and he addressed multiple audiences in his ministry. He wrote to those Jews in exile. He also wrote to those who were left in Judah, warning them that the fall of Jerusalem was coming. And then after the 586 BC terrible fall of Jerusalem, after the months-long siege, after Jerusalem's fall, Ezekiel gave from God hope and assurance to the people of Judah. And why is that important? Well, by now they've lost hope of ever enjoying God's favor again, of ever functioning in full covenantal relationship with God again, and certainly of ever enjoying the, the old days, the heyday of glorious temple worship. Why? Because the temple was destroyed. It was gone. Ezekiel's prophecies are divided into three major parts. The first 24 chapters of Ezekiel are prophecies before the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapters 25 through 32 are prophecies against various nations, just to let them know that God has his eye on them as well. And then chapters 33 through 48 are prophecies to comfort Israel after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so our text tonight in Ezekiel 36 falls into this final section of comfort with the first seven verses describing how Israel was removed from her land forcibly, and then verses 8 through 15 giving the hope of a future of fruitfulness for the land. I kind of debated back and forth. I really could have included this text in some of the upcoming series we have on Israel itself, but Ezekiel 36 reveals to us so much about the millennial kingdom in general that I included it in this more uh, general consideration of Old Testament witnesses, but Just to be very clear, the primary recipient here is Israel. And yet, because of God's grace to Israel, all believers are going to experience these tremendous blessings in the millennium. Now, this is a long text. Verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 38. And so, I divided it into two broad ideas. And we'll build on these. Idea number one, we'll just call the dilemma. That's the dilemma. Verses 16 through 21, and then... I'll give this to you up front. The idea number two, the decree. So we have the dilemma and the decree. The decree takes up most of the chapter. Let me add to that. Idea number one, the dilemma is this. Israel's exile from the land has profaned the reputation of God. Israel's exile from the land has profaned. It's, it's damaged the reputation of God. Now, I'm going to divide that even further, and I want to look at the reason for the exile and the results of the exile. So first of all, the reason for the exile, the reason for the exile is that Israel has defiled the land with sin. Israel has defiled the land with sin. 
Ezekiel 36, 16, and I'll read the first three verses here in this part of the text. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols." So in verse 16, we have this opening phrase, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, this happens 46 times in Ezekiel. It means that a new section is beginning. God is giving a designated single stream of thought to pay attention to. In verse 17, the defilement of the land is compared to the uncleanness from contact with a woman who is menstruating. And and Leviticus 15, 19 gives us the background to this it indicates that the woman was ceremonially unclean because of the discharge of blood now just to be clear the uncleanness it didn't require sacrifice of any kind this was a natural function of the woman's body it wasn't an indication of sinfulness or of guilt it's just showing that life itself made a person unclean in many different ways unfit to worship god until ceremonial cleansing occurred As a matter of fact, given that this can be a difficult time for a woman physically and even emotionally, the the prohibitions against contact with much of anything actually afforded the woman somewhat of a break for a number of days from the normal duties of life. And so it's, it's not a punishment. It's just an indicator that life makes us unclean. Any more so than if you were working out in your yard and you, you were uh, dusty and dirty and had grass stains on, on you and all of this. You, you wouldn't come to church that way. You would clean up before you came to worship God. But verse 18 takes this illustration a step further. Not only was Israel spiritually unfit to worship God, the illustration of the blood flow is specified here in verse 18 that in the same way a woman on her cycle touched anything, became ceremonially unclean. Everything that got touched by her was unclean. The land had been defiled because of the blood shed on the land, specifically the blood shed due to idol worship. Murder was rampant. Sacrifices to false gods were rampant. But the most heinous sacrifices which shed innocent blood terribly were the sacrifices of baby boys. Ezekiel 16.36, God condemns Israel for the blood of your sons which you gave to idols. In chapter 23, we see the horrific scene of burning children alive as sacrifices to idols. And then, and then the worshipers would have the audacity, literally after burning their children to death and seeing their blood spilled on the ground at some pagan altar, then the same day, According to chapter 23, verse 37 and 39, they would go to the temple and mock worship Yahweh. What were they doing? Well, they were hedging their bets, so to speak. We're going to worship all the pagan gods and we're going to make a show of worshiping Yahweh and one of them is the true God. And so the land itself is is very much presented as, as almost alive here. The land, the gift of God to Israel, the very foundation of God's promises to Abraham for a chosen nation, it was dirtied, it was defiled, and by no fault of its own. God had already warned Israel what defilement of the land would cause. Leviticus 18, 28. 
God tells Israel that if Israel persisted in covenant unfaithfulness, the land would, quote, vomit you out should you defile it. That's exactly what happened. By the way, that's the same imagery that Christ gives the church at Laodicea, isn't it? The church that was arrogant and shallow and lukewarm in their love for Christ. Christ himself said, so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, literally vomit you out of my mouth. The land itself was acting as a witness. The land itself was the victim. And this is exactly the same dynamic that we see going all the way back to Genesis 4. After Cain had murdered his brother Abel, God questioned Cain and said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from what? From the ground. The land is witness. And in the same way, the voice of the blood of children sacrificed to idols was crying out to God from the land given to Israel. I mean, this is incomprehensible that Israel brought miraculously out of Egypt with a promise before them that God calls the promised what? Land. That was what they lived for. They were going to have their own land, the promised land, the land given by God, now wet and puddled with the blood of little boys offered gruesomely to pagan gods. And so the privilege of living on the land was taken away from them. Verse 19, Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. We've said this before, but I think this is a good occasion to say it again. Any who hold that the land promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, are now taken as symbolic and not really talking about an actual land of Israel, they should rethink that diminishing and denigrating of the idea of the land. The land is esteemed highly enough that when it was defiled long enough, God moved his people off of it. And there hasn't been a time yet where that has been restored. So that's the reason for the exile. Israel has defiled the land with sin. And what's the result now of the exile? The result now, the exile, God's reputation is profaned. God's reputation is profaned. Verse 20. Then they came to the nations to which they came, and they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. You see, the consequences of Israel's rebellion were far worse than, than just Israel losing their home. The consequences were the very worst thing. The denigrating, the profaning of the reputation of God. Now why is, why is that a connection? Why are those two connected? In the ancient Near East, a nation was intertwined with her gods. They were, they were one and the same. A nation was represented by her gods and her gods represented the nation. And if Israel, whose God is Yahweh has been exiled and has lost all her land and and splintered among the nations, all the peoples around them, they wouldn't have good theology. They wouldn't say, well, Yahweh is the one true living God and of course this is God disciplining his people. Of course he should do this. No, that's not what they would think. They would think, well, Yahweh's not much of a God, is he? He can't keep his own people. He's weak. He's failed. He's unable. He's powerless. He can't defend his own people. You see, the state of Israel was directly tied to God's reputation. Let me take us back in time a little bit to help you understand this concept. After the Exodus, 
And after hearing the report of the 12 spies of the mighty men in Canaan, whom they would have to face, Numbers 14 records one of several times that the people of Israel complained. They're weeping and they're crying because they're out in the dangerous wilderness and they're about to face what they perceived as a daunting enemy. And a rebellion began with the intention to replace Moses with someone who would lead them all the way back to Egypt. The two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, they tore their clothes. They told the people, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. But the people rioted. And in fact, they're ready to stone these two guys to death. Bad move. Numbers 14.10 says, Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. That is an uh-oh moment. Because at that moment, God threatened them and he did it to Moses. He said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have done in their midst? I will strike them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. But now, amazingly, I think about any other man on earth would have said, hmm, that's not a bad idea. I could be a whole new nation. But Moses, he interceded in prayer on behalf of the people and he did it on the basis of God's reputation. Moses said to Yahweh, this is Numbers 14, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your power you brought up this people from their midst and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Yahweh, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in the pillar of cloud by day and in the pillar of fire by night. Now if you put this people to death as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to them, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Did you catch that? That the nations would say, Yahweh just couldn't finish the job. Good move, Moses. It was a move which God ordained. God always intended to protect his people from his own wrath. But the prayer of Moses was the means by which he would protect Israel from himself. And it was that plea that Moses made on the basis of not diminishing the glory and the fame of God. And this is precisely the concern that God brings to Ezekiel that the nations of the ancient Near East have believed that God was unable to keep them in their land. He was unable to resist the, the power first of the mighty Assyrians conquering the northern kingdom and then the might of the powerful Babylonians conquering the southern kingdom. And now we come to a pivot point. It's a turning point and it reveals the very highest purpose of God, which is his own glory. If Christians could get that, you would get half the Christian's life that God's highest purpose is always his own glory. And this is our pivot point. Verse 21. But... I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. So the dilemma is that Israel's exile has profaned the reputation of God. The reason for the exile was the defiling of the land with sin. And the result of the exile was the profaning of God's reputation. That's the dilemma. So what's God going to do about it? That brings us to the decree. The decree, the action Verse 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says Lord Yahweh, 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Verse 22 now turns to action. Therefore, God's about to do something, and he's crystal clear about his highest priority. It is not compassion for his people. It's zeal for his own holiness. It is zeal for his own glory. That, that doesn't negate his compassion for his people, but that's secondary. That's secondary. What is God's purpose? Verse 23, Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh. And so God issues a decree to restore his reputation and prove to the nations his greatness and his might. And this decree has six parts to it. We're going to work our way through these. The first part of the decree the regathered people. The regathered people. Verse 24. And I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. You notice how comprehensive this is. God will return Israel from the nations, plural, from all the lands, plural. Now keep this in mind. When the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah... And the city of Israel, and when they carried off prisoners, this was only from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The other ten tribes from the uh, northern kingdom, they were decimated. They were carried off a century and a half earlier, and they never returned to their land. So this is now speaking of a comprehensive program for God to return Jews from all the nations. That clearly has not happened yet. So second part to this decree. We'll label this one the regenerated people. The regenerated people. Verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. Now, if this sounds a lot like Jeremiah 31, which we looked at recently, this is describing the same event. The new covenant regeneration and giving of the Holy Spirit. So let's walk our way through this for a moment. The sprinkling with clean water, this indicated ceremonial washing that gave purification before God. Numbers 19, verse 19, gave the guideline of the ceremonially unclean person washing in clean water, in order to be able to worship God. It's a preparatory act. And in fact, the next verse in Numbers 19 says that the one entering into the assembly of God's people for worship in an unclean state, you ready for this? It was to be cut off from his people. This is a big deal. You didn't just, let me put it in terms we understand, you didn't just show up to church dirty. You came clean. We see similar commands in Leviticus 14. And this isn't a complete process. This is simply the prerequisite, being made ready to worship God. It was opening the door to proper worship of God. It was to be restored or revitalized or ceremonially regenerated. But now the ceremonial regeneration is promised here in internal, actual terms. Yes, the, the water is used as a symbol, but now it's, it's actual. 
in new covenant terms. Then you're familiar with this. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God is describing here the end times rebirth of the human spirit of all the living Jews on the earth. This is the regeneration and the subsequent indwelling by the Holy Spirit. Or to put it this way, this is the new clothing of the regenerate believer, first cleansed of sin, then given the garments of righteousness. And now God's people will be naturally inclined to keep God's laws. It will be natural, it will be normal. This is not speaking of the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, because all the other promises we're going to see, they haven't happened yet. So this is speaking of the the absolute totality of the new economy for Israel. This is the pouring out of the Spirit of God on all Israel. This isn't our only text either. We have Ezekiel 39, we have Isaiah 44, Isaiah 59, Joel 2. Jesus, as we read earlier, described this phenomenon. What did he call it? He said, you must be what? Born again. So to be very clear, The new covenant was inaugurated. It was begun in Christ at the cross and it began to have some fruition at Pentecost. It continues today. But the new covenant has not been completed. It hasn't been consummated. It hasn't been finished yet. We saw the beginnings of it at Pentecost but never a national conversion. The 3,000 that came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost, they didn't go and suddenly save the whole nation. And in fact, just a few years later, what happened was that they were scattered because they were being persecuted. There's a third part to the decree we'll call the reconciled people. The reconciled people. Verse 28, And you will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. When Israel is regathered, there's now a reconciled covenant bond. You will be my people. I will be your God. This is huge. This is a key declaration by God. And let me back up to explain why that phrase is so important. Because of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, God declared that his relationship with Israel was broken. And what language did he use? Jeremiah 3, 8, he said, I have given her a certificate of divorce. Isaiah 50, verse 1, he speaks of a certificate of divorce and he sent his disobedient people away. So what does that have to do with the important phrase here in Ezekiel 36, 28? You will be my people and I will be your God. This is a very formal phrase. This is the only time in Ezekiel that Ezekiel uses this longer independent pronoun, I, anarchy in Hebrew, what does that mean? It's official. It's definite. It is formal. It's the difference between jeans and a t-shirt and a suit. It is big time. What is this? This is God reusing, listen carefully, his original marriage vows. His marriage vows, as it were, to demonstrate his ever-faithful loyalty to his own covenant with Israel. This is speaking of spiritual remarriage, so to speak. They're reconciled. It's a beautiful picture. There's a fourth part to the decree. 
the renovated land. The renovated land. Verse 29, Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field, so that you will not receive again the reproach of famine among the nations. Part of saving Israel from her uncleanness is, in a sense, there won't be a broken relationship between Israel and the land anymore. If I can put it that way, now that the land is no longer being defiled and that Israel has been cleansed, the land will do what God always intended it to do. And they'll never have the reproach. It means the insult, the degradation, the humiliation of famine. Now, why is famine humiliating? I mean, sure, there's the crisis of low food supplies, but why was famine humiliating? Because famine tells all the nations surrounding, I guess Israel's God was too weak and too powerless to give them crops, to feed them, that their sacrifices are pointless, apparently. You notice the key word seen twice. God will call for the grain and multiply it. He will multiply the fruit of the tree. This is a Hebrew word which means to increase, to become numerous. And it's a particular verb form which means God is causing this and it's happening sequentially over and over again. It's, it's an abundance. It's a superabundance. Now, this is important because we have to place this in the timeline of future events. The land of Israel has just endured the horrible rule of Antichrist, the cataclysmic results of the Great Tribulation, but now the land is renovated. Verse 33, Thus says Lord Yahweh, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. All the abandoned towns and cities are now inhabited and rebuilt. Verse 34, The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. The farmland that had been given up on, made useless in the tumultuous times of the end of the Great Tribulation, now it's growing abundant crops. Verse 35, and they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. They will say, who will say? The nations, the nations that are now witnessing the restoration of Israel, they'll compare Israel to the Garden of Eden. That's never happened. That's never happened. In verse 36, Then the nations that remain all around you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and will do it. God restates His purpose in restoring His Israel. That is to restore His reputation in the world. I want to remind you of a theme we brought out in some of our introductory messages on the millennium. And that is that spiritual salvation is linked directly to physical blessing and material blessing in the world just as God has always intended it. It is a lie from Satan to say that the the spiritual things are good, the invisible things are good, and the, the physical things are not so good. No, the two go together. Because of the spiritual salvation of Israel, this supernatural fertility of the land is a major feature in the coming kingdom. Just a couple of examples. Ezekiel 47 highlights a new river that will flow in two different directions, literally from the new temple in Jerusalem. Isaiah 55, 13 describes what the land will be like. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of 
the nettle, the myrtle will come up and it will be to Yahweh for his renown, meaning his fame, for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Zechariah 8.12, for there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnants of this people to inherit all these things in the millennial kingdom. Just a side note here, I'm going to grow watermelons. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I tried to grow watermelons once and what I grew was a big part of my backyard filled with vines and no watermelons. I'm not a farmer and I gave up at that moment. I'm sure there's some pollination thing that I messed up on. But all I did was literally grow an entire yard full of weeds that then I had to pull out. So I'm going to grow watermelons because in this kingdom, I'll plant the seed and whoop, there they come right there. But listen, God is speaking to a people who make their living off the land and the land is just going to explode in, in abundance. In fact... Remember how Ezekiel has personified the land as offended, as defiled, as sinned against. But in the restoration, the land is going to rejoice. The land is going to revel. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 looks ahead to the desert lands blooming like lush rose gardens. The creation that will, quote, rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. Why is the creation rejoicing? It's the opposite of what? In the New Testament, groaning. Paul says in Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to, the, to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. By the way, that's in Romans 8. What comes next in Romans, right after Paul says that the creation is waiting to be released from the curse, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, what comes next? Romans 9, 10, and 11, the detailed explanation of the salvation of Israel. If I could put it this way, the renewal of the land is always associated with the spiritual salvation of Israel. Always. Those two go together. Here's a fifth part to the decree. The repentant people. The repentant people. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves to your own faces for your iniquities and your abominations. The attitude towards sin will finally be proper. Their attitude will be that of humility, lowliness, repentance. And no doubt generations born thereafter will hear the story of how Israel was once desolate and destroyed, but her faithful God brought her back. And in fact, this is very clear from Romans 2, 4. Paul says, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. In verse 32, again, God emphasizes his ultimate motivation. Verse 32, I am not doing this for your sake, declares Lord Yahweh. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and feel dishonor for your ways, O house of Israel. The motivation is God's fame, God's acclamation, God's reputation, God's glory. Now, you might have noticed this here if you're kind of looking at the order of events. It seems, at least, that the repentance of Israel is in response to the kindness of God in regathering them. The premillennial theologian Arnold Fruchtenbaum 
He wrote a massive work called The Footsteps of Messiah, a study of the sequence of prophetic events. You can buy it for uh, your own edification or it works really well as a doorstop as well. This thing's massive. And he takes the order of events in Ezekiel 36 as indicating that the regathering of Israel happens first, then the regeneration and repentance of the nation. And that actually meshes very well with Zechariah 12.10, that I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So it appears at least that, that the Jews are regathered. They see Christ, then they mourn their sin. Now, just to be fair, uh, Fruchtenbaum also says in his comments on Jeremiah 31 that following the regeneration of Israel, all the Jews will be regathered. So there's room for some discussion there. But we'll need to be dogmatic on an exact order in that. Israel will be regathered. Israel will be repentant. Those two things are going to happen. It's safe to say that what we're witnessing as a future reality is the greatest spiritual revival in history. An entire people gathered from every corner of the world simultaneously regenerated. What a day that will be. And according to Zechariah 12, what's going to be the first thing that happens? Weeping and then rejoicing. There's a sixth part to the decree. The reproduced people. The reproduced people. Verse 37, Thus says Lord Yahweh, This also I will let the house of Israel inquire of me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for holy offerings, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed times. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. If you even know the basics of of world history, you know that all through history, various groups, various nations have attempted to eradicate the Jews from the world. That's happening today. To wipe them off the face of the earth. Over the past weeks we've seen this theme of the massive growth of the numbers of God's people. And the phrasing here by the way is is semantically parallel to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17.2. Genesis 17.2 God said so that I may confirm my covenant between me and you and that I may multiply you exceedingly. Very similar to I will increase their men. There's an emphasis here in this last part of Ezekiel 36 on this first person pronoun. I will let, I will increase, I am Yahweh. The remnant of the nations left on earth will finally know that Yahweh is Lord. And one of the ways they'll know is that in an innocent, loving sense, people will be looking around going, man, there's Jews everywhere now. Why is that? This is an interesting analogy God gives. He said, I'll increase their men like a flock. Remember, these are the saved survivors of the great tribulation now coming from all over the world to repopulate the land of Israel. We learned in Isaiah 65 that lifespans are now going to be wildly extended. So what does it mean? I will increase their men like a flock. This is a reference to a flock of sheep. The prime reproducing years for a ewe is around five to seven years. And during that time, every year, she can produce one to three lambs. 
And this is, even in our fallen world, at a normal 90 to 95% fertility rate, meaning 9 out of 10 times there's an attempt to breed the ewe, it will be successful. And so a ewe could give birth potentially to 10 or 15 or more lambs just in her prime years. In a well-tended flock, just five ewes in five years could produce a herd potentially of 75 sheep, and that doesn't count those lambs growing up and reproducing as well. Now, assuming that since the non-resurrected people even are going to start living hundreds of years, as we saw in Isaiah 65, a young wife in her prime, if conservatively she only had 50 years of fertility, could easily bring 30 to 40 children into the world. What does that mean? It means she could literally be having children when her oldest kids are grandparents. That is be fruitful and multiply at the level that God originally designed. Some of you young parents, I know you, you have your second child and you think, well, my life is over. I, ha- I, I just I can't do it. You have three and you're semi-suicidal. You have four. Then you realize number one can actually help with two, three, and four, and that's helpful. But now we look at families with 10 or 12 kids like, wow, you know, that's kind of an odd thing. How about 30? How about 50? How about 100? So what has been foretold in Ezekiel 36 about God's people? We've broken it down. The regathered people, the regenerated people, the reconciled people, the renovated land, the repentant people, the reproduced people. But what's our connection to these glorious prophecies? How do we relate to this? The great Charles Feinberg points out that we're connected to this people because of our salvation in Christ. And he makes this observation in a really sharp manner. He compares the theology of Ezekiel with the theology of our friend and brother, Paul the Apostle. He says this, The doctrines of Ezekiel are indeed those of Paul as well. Forgiveness, regeneration, the indwelling and ruling Spirit of God, the spontaneous keeping of God's law, the inseparable connection of Israel's history with God's self-revelation to the nations, and the conversion of the nation Israel. But rather than stay up in the clouds of theology, Feinberg is then very practical and he challenges all of us that God continues to be concerned that those who claim to follow Christ have a responsibility to properly represent him for the sake of his glory. And he asks these questions Do we properly represent him or misrepresent him? Do our lives manifest the grace that saved us or are they a disgrace to the grace that redeemed us? His chief consideration is for the glory of His name, then for the welfare of His people upon whom His name has been placed. Now it might be tempting to ask the question, why are we worrying about some obscure doctrine like the return of Israel to their land? I mean, who who cares? Listen carefully. This final phrase In Ezekiel 36, 38, the reasoning for God's returning Israel nationally to her land, then they will know that I am Yahweh. Why is that important? If Israel does not return, is not restored nationally, if all of these things don't happen literally, not symbolically, not figuratively, but actually, if these things don't happen, then the purpose of God is not fulfilled. If the purpose of God is not fulfilled, then the nations will not know. The reputation of Yahweh will never be restored. 
And Yahweh will never let that happen. So we don't worry about this because it's some dry theological point. This is about God keeping promises that the clock ticking right now are 4,000 years old. And God, as it were, in Ezekiel 36 says, why would you ever think I've deviated from keeping these promises? They're going to happen exactly as I said. So there they are in the dark of the night. Jesus and Nicodemus and the great teacher of Israel has just been schooled by Jesus. That unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus basically said, Nicodemus, you should know what I'm talking about. What was he talking about? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to do my judgments. That unless you participate in that, you cannot be part of the kingdom. And listen, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was proud of his law keeping. He was proud of his knowledge of scripture. He was proud of his title. He was considered the teacher of Israel. But by God's grace, he also knew he needed to ask Jesus the most important question he would ever ask in his whole life. In the dark of the night, perhaps to avoid embarrassment as the great teacher of Israel, to ask Jesus, are you from God? Are you from God? Did God send you? And Nicodemus had to know. Jesus told him that he must be born again when the Spirit of God would blow like the wind at his own will and discretion. And Jesus gave Nicodemus the basis and the foundation for the coming new birth. He told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Several years later, just minutes or hours after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea wanted to help bury Jesus. But guess who was with Him? John 19 tells us, Now after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body, (laughs) and Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 litras, meaning thousands of dollars worth. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You see, Nicodemus believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will witness. He will take part in the grand, glorious return of Israel that's to come. He's in heaven right now, waiting for all these promises that Jesus gave, that God gave through Ezekiel 36 to be fulfilled. He's in heaven now, not because he was a great Bible teacher, not because he was the teacher of Israel, not because he was a Pharisee, not because he fastidiously kept the law. He's in heaven now because the Spirit of God moved and he was born again. And so that Nicodemus joins in the praise given by Paul. 
that he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of Ezekiel 36. It's stunning. It's so exciting. It's so thrilling. It creates anticipation and eagerness and anxiousness on our part. It helps us to all the more fervently to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that this time tonight would help us to be all the more eager to look heavenward, to seek the things that are above. We thank you and praise you that you are a promise-keeping God. That when you made a promise to an old man named Abram, you intend to keep that promise and it literally has changed the world. And we hang on those promises as well. For you promised to give him a chosen nation and through that nation to give him a seed, a son. And through that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We who are the poor Gentiles outside of the camp of God that you have now brought into the fold, that you have grafted in to your glorious people. Lord, I pray for every person here that their hearts and their minds are drawn heavenward, are drawn toward this coming reality. And that in turn, we live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. That as we've looked at very much a Sunday text, that our Monday would show us to be those who live for the coming kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to you in honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we might spread his fame accurately. We pray in his name. Amen.